This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Future Holders, teaching youth, leadership, finance, and entrepreneurship for kids. Developed by educators in a school setting, Future Holders addresses K-12 social-emotional learning standards by integrating the critical life skills often left out of school programming. The curriculum has demonstrated a 91% mastery of leadership competency-based assessments, an 82% mastery of financial skills assessment compared to the U.S. average of 57%, and launched over 500 youth businesses. Future Holders is currently offering the platform free to groups of educators as they consider their fall curriculum needs. And you can find them at edcuration.com. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. It's a little bit of social work, a little bit of science, and a little bit of passion. The most valuable resource is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. But we have to be able to continuously poll our students and just give them voice. We have to pick texts that are totally going to push their thinking. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Christy Hemingway, and I feel very lucky to be talking with today's guest because he's a busy guy and a highly sought after speaker. He's sought after because he's incredibly knowledgeable, motivating, and energetic, and his experience speaks for itself. Steve Ventura is a former elementary and secondary teacher, as well as both a school and district level administrator. He has published multiple books and articles. He regularly presents and keynotes at major global education events, so you may have already heard of him. And he took the time today to share with us the topic of his upcoming book, scheduled to release in late 2021. I'm going to let him tell you about it. So Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks, Chrissy. I'm very delighted to be here. So Steve, you have quite an extensive background in education. Can you nutshell that at all for us? Oh yeah, really quickly. I mean, it's very, it's so unassuming. You know, I started off as a very humble physical education teacher. And then, you know, just like everything else, somebody saw something in me that said, well, you ought to try special ed. And so I got my credential in special ed. And then from there, I went into administration and got my master's in administration, did all of that work assistant principal, principal, assistant superintendent, superintendent. And then I was fortunate enough to get into educational consulting right around 2008. And I have really loved it. Yeah. And and the way that that is manifesting for you at the moment is that you founded an organization called Advanced Collaborative Solutions. What led to that? You had a vision for impacting education on a much broader, bigger scale. How did that happen? You know, Chrissy, it's it's really interesting because when I first started consulting, I was with another organization called the Leadership and Learning Center that was founded by Dr. Douglas Reeves. So we did a lot of work with Doug Reeves. And then I then started working with Corwin Professional Learning, which is where I got on my visible learning training through Professor Hattie. But in the meantime, I formed Advanced Collaborative Solutions because I really wanted to design something that had its roots based on visible learning that could mm-hmm. help us show people how to be better com- consumers of what really good collaboration could look like. In addition to your consulting work, you're also a writer and an author. 
And you have written or contributed to, I think, five books. Am yes. I right about that? Okay. And those span the topics of data teams, assessments, standards alignment, and listeners can actually find those on your website, which will be linked in the episode notes. Your most recent book is Discovering Achievement Teams, The Key to Effective Collaboration, which you kind of just said is your passion, this whole idea of collaborating effectively. And it's coming out later in 2021. The date is TBD. Who did you write this book for? Was it, is it only for teachers or is this a helpful structure for teams of all kinds? This book has everything for everybody. It's really about a four-step protocol to enhance collaboration. It has a complete section on leadership and implementation. It actually goes into teacher clarity with learning progressions and success criteria. But it's really a place where leaders could use this book, superintendents could use the book, practitioners in the classroom could use the book and the method and take a look at how they could actually ramp up their current levels of collaboration and really increase the level of collective teacher efficacy. However, they want to do that. They, there's a pretty good recipe in the book to maximize that. So it has a you know, we wrote it. So it'd be very appealing for a lot of people because we've trained all those people. Did you create this protocol from scratch or is it kind of a mashup of different strategies that you've encountered throughout your career? How, how did you? Yeah. It? So I was a certified trainer for data teams. And I was fascinated by data teams. The only thing that happened with my data teams training was that I could never get teachers to really turn the page about evaluating their own impact because data teams was about the data. And so what we were talking about was student performance and achievement teams is really about reflecting and really looking at the fundamental task, which is to evaluate the effect of my teaching. We love the data because that helps us give us feedback. But with achievement teams, I looked at data teams and I said, wow, there's a lot of potential here. So then we looked at the visible learning effect sizes and we embedded those into the achievement team process. So the practices that teachers use can considerably accelerate student achievement based on the probability that they work. So, okay. Yeah. So break that down a little bit for us, because I remember when the school that I taught at most recently, several years ago, I taught there for nine years and I was middle school and high school. English. And we adopted data teams one year and everybody was all excited about it because data teams was, was kind of a new thing. And somebody had gone to a training and they came back and data teams was going to change you know, our practice. But we experienced exactly what you just said. We came to this stopping point where we didn't really know how to apply the data or how to respond to the data. And so how... How do achievement teams take us further? What, how are they different than data teams? I know. I love this question because everybody asks like, so what's the difference between a data team and achievement team? And the question really is, how can achievement teams improve your current levels of collaboration? So it was never designed to be better than anything. It was, a, it was about actually adding value to current levels of collaboration. And what achievement teams does is it focuses less on all the data, Christy, and focuses mm -hmm. more on having teachers understand like some mind frames of visible learning, like the assessment itself is more of a reflection of the teacher's effort than the students. That's a big shift from data teams because data teams was data, data, data. And then we have to talk about the kids and all the problems they're having. We never really got a chance to really turn the mirror back on the people who had the antecedents that may have caused that data. So mm -hmm. achievement team still is a pre-teach, reteach, pre-post assessment model. It still applies goal setting for both teachers and students. But the third step is really about these baseline evidence statements, like really actually 
looking at root causes and then using those root causes, whether they're causing achievement or preventing kids from achieving, to take a look at what kind of strategies could we actually do that may have more impact than the ones we did. In data teams, I remember it was such a tight process. I could never get teachers to the last step, Christy, which was this instructional strategy piece. It just Mm -hmm. kind of ran out of gas after goal setting, like, okay, we did it. And then I then, again, based on the visible learning research, we started pushing in effect sizes that really could be used as an instructional strategy between a pre and post. And those effect sizes were, were, were well above just returning one year's worth of teaching for one year's worth of growth. They were designed to double the speed of progress. And so that's how I kind of went from my data team background. Just like you, I had the data team training too. And then all of a sudden, I started teaching data teams. And I, I looked at it from the lens after I, again, looked at visible learning and thought, wow, there's so many things we didn't do that I wish we did because mm-hmm. we just didn't have that yet. And that's how kind of achievement teams blossomed from like a PLC or a data team. Did you, were you working with groups of educators and districts to kind of refine the process and create the materials as you went along? Was this a collaborative process, creating the collaborative process? It was, it was such an amazing journey because all of a sudden I was coming up with more unique ways to get folks to take a look at collaboration. So then I would pilot achievement teams with any district who was willing to take a look at it. They usually were former data team folks. And they were experiencing the frustration like, oh, let me see if we can take this hard. This is not actually diminishing the worth of data teams at all. But it was just kind of building on that previous learning and adding more value. So I kept massaging it out. I had probably 10 different iterations of this before we finally came up with the final four steps and the purpose of those four steps. So it was really an interesting journey. And we just kept getting more feedback from clients. I love that it was such a hands-on process. Oh, yeah. Would you say a lot of these practices, maybe even, you know, the majority of them, are things that really healthy collaborative teams do sort of organically, maybe not in such a structured way, and that this is a way, a structure and steps that allow unhealthy or maybe undeveloped teams to learn to do those things that good teams are already doing? Yeah, what we discovered from our research through collective efficacy, through collaboration was, is that teams are more effective when they follow protocols consistently. It doesn't mean that you can't be creative. It means that you have to follow a protocol consistently to actually develop the end of the meeting so you know what to do next before you come back. And so what we discovered was, is that that one was missing from a lot of collaborative teams. They were given the time to collaborate, but they really didn't have the guidance to collaborate. You know, I was one of these people when I was a principal, I'm like, you know what, here's your collaboration time, talk about data. I mean, I didn't even tell people, you know, well, how to do this. And so what we decided to do was, if you're a high functioning team, this will add value to your team. If you're just getting into collaboration This will literally take you through it step by step. That's why I love your question. Who's the book for? It's for both. Mm -hmm. It's for beginning people trying to get it started. And it's for people who have a pretty good grasp on what they want to collaborate around. This actually adds the tightness that people are looking for, right? You know, it's interesting as I'm listening to you talk and thinking about this idea of effective collaboration and that collaborating well and effectively is a skill that a lot of us just never learned. Mm. 
And it's not that we're not people people or not that we're not team players or that we're hard to get along with or anything. We just, a lot of us just never learned how to collaborate well. Well, yeah. And I think it's freeing, right? Isn't it freeing to teams for you to be able to say, here's how you do it? Yeah. Yeah. And, but that's what a lot of people are looking for, by the way. Just tell me, tell me how we can do this. And then we give people this roadmap. And like I said before, some of our newer clients, they follow it to the T because they Mm -hmm. need it. But some of our existing clients or people who have PLC or data team training see things like, you know what, this never happened when we've collaborated before and we need to add this element. And that's super rewarding too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we just want it to be appealing to all kinds of users on all different levels. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a broad question because I'm sure that you've kind of seen everything that's out there in your experience working with districts. And the overarching idea of this is effective collaboration with and teaching has typically, historically, I guess, been kind of an isolated and solitary practice. When I first started teaching a million years ago, I would come home from work and it was my husband's and I, it was our running gag that he would say, so what did you do today? And I would say, oh, you know, we, we did satanic rituals or in the next day, what did you do today? We made weapons of mass destruction. And the joke that only we got was that nobody knows what I'm doing in my classroom. And I'm not sure that anyone cares. Probably somebody does, but that was the like that was the joke that we made that i could i could be doing anything in that classroom with those kids and so that has shifted and i have seen that shift through my teaching career and there was a period where teachers were really defensive like this is my practice i don't want right. anybody in my yeah. room i don't want anybody watching me i don't want a coach coach means that i'm a failure that has completely shifted i think in the last years that, that I've been involved in teaching. What are some of the effective practices? What is proving lasting in that shift versus a lot of the passing initiatives and the bandwagons that we jump on? Right, right. Yeah, because everybody goes to the same supermarket and they buy the same initiative. And then it goes into the, what I call the graveyard of good intentions. Oh and it my never gosh. comes back again. Yes. So when we put achievement teams together, we really want to teach yourself Understand that this whole meeting is about appropriating new knowledge about teaching and learning rather than maintaining existing knowledge. Can't start the meeting with and then not have a challenge or fall into a pit and then leave the meeting with the same, with the same skill. You have to challenge yourself about what can we do actually better. So we challenge sensitively current thinking and practice. That has a lot of momentum for people. And what we discovered with people working in isolation is you become limited to your own perspectives when you don't collaborate with anybody else. And so the powerful thing about collaboration combined with the research from Goddard and Hoy and Albert Bandura and everything about collective teacher efficacy, especially John Hattie's finding where collective teacher efficacy can actually triple the speed of progress for kids because people on a team believe that they can positively affect the lives of the students they serve as a collective, not as an individual team. Okay. I got to stop you. Say that again. Because our listeners are going to whiz past that and go, wait, what did he just say about tripling effectiveness? Yeah. Say that, so, say that again. So the effect size that we looked at from collective teacher efficacy was based on Professor Hattie's comparison between people who, re- who received that. It's a c- control versus treatment. And okay. teams of teachers who had higher levels of efficacy were way more effective in teaching than 
than teachers who worked in individual silos. And what that meant was the effect size was so large, Christy, that it could actually actually push progress up to three instructional years in one instructional year. It doesn't mean that kids are at 90% proficient and everything. It means that they're progressing quicker than they would if they had not had teachers that were collaborating and believed in collective teacher efficacy. That's amazing. I love looking at strategies that have a very high probability of making a difference. It's not cause and effect. I can't say it's a prediction. It's just high probability that these practices could actually have a huge influence on achievement. So these would have to happen in the life of a teacher, probably during the time that is allotted for their their content team or their grade level team or their PLC. Right. Right. And so I'm going to quote your website. You say, many schools and districts have decided that professional learning communities, PLCs, are the best strategy for improving student achievement. But these same organizations experiment with a collaborative protocol and then abandon PLCs as soon as the next hot initiative comes along. And that has completely been my experience. So I worked as as a literacy coach and I worked with different districts across the country. And a lot of those districts said, oh, no, we can't have you working with teams during their PLC because that's their planning time. And I didn't even know how to respond to that because that's not their planning time. That is their PLC. So what are the keys to making PLCs and or content level teams or grade level teams an effective time to practice these protocols and to actually stick to it long enough to get reliable data? Yeah, well, first of all, they have to have the time, right? There has to be time set aside for people to meet 45 minutes to an hour if that's possible. Some districts have it, some don't. So many of the teachers I work with, when they see achievement teams, are like, if only we had enough time to collaborate. But it's always taken. It's always, it always has an agenda. So even when they're given time to collaborate, it has already been agendized by somebody else. So they call it prep time or PLC time. But really what it is, is just house cleaning and getting things yeah. checked off the list. What I try to do is if I can just, and, and, and leaders really make this happen, by the way, you have to have a leader that actually believes in this, that can foster it, that can lead it, that can make it happen, because it just doesn't happen by telling teachers to meet and follow these steps. I mean, they'll come back and they'll be very excited from one of our training, but they need somebody to organize this and lead it and actually stand by it and be extremely courageous about, here's what I'd like to see. I did it, Christy, when I was a principal. I saw the value when I was a superintendent. We made time. And it was tremendously appreciated by the teachers. And it had a large, a really positive impact too. But if we can just get people to get through a cycle, they will immediately see progress. I've never seen an achievement team that we've led that comes out with lower proficiency scores the second time as the first time. It always increases because it's just proven that, you know, we can actually grow kids. So yeah, it's time, but it's also really having a growth mindset and relational trust. You know, it's hard to get people to collaborate, Chrissy, if they don't believe in each other, if they don't trust each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are all culture issues at schools. We have to deal with that too. We have many schools that I won't even show them how to collaborate until we do some relational trust work about what this means to be really good consumers of collaboration. Speaking of productive collaboration and great teams, the teachers of Aspen Academy saw gaps in their students' learning 
and worked together to create Future Holders. This is Katie Becker, the Executive Director of Future Holders. We are so grateful to be today's sponsor of the Ed Curation Podcast. At Future Holders, we believe that we need to collectively change the way we think about education, producing life-ready leaders, not test-ready graduates. We believe that schools and their students can be developed as creators, cultivators, incubators, disruptors, and change makers. We've seen firsthand that when we focus first on who is in front of us and second on what we want to teach them, extraordinary things happen. We believe Future Holders is the perfect example of how increased teacher efficacy through healthy collaboration has a huge and measurable positive impact on student achievement. Aspen Academy is founded on the idea that in collective roots, individual strengths are discovered and expanded. You can find their Future Holders curriculum at edcuration.com. And now back to Steve. If you're a teacher listening to this episode, I'm about to ask him the question that I know you're wondering. Is there additional time? Is there a lot of tracking and paperwork required for the teachers? Mm -mm. No. Be created. And a really awesome spreadsheet for them to use. It literally has an algorithm built in that calculates a goal for them between a pre and post. They have to do nothing, just put in some information. It permits them to enter their instructional strategies. It permits them to enter their analysis. And it's electronic. We didn't want it. We already saw what happens when people have mounds of paperwork. They never finish the meeting. They just won't do it. Yeah. (laughs) So we made something that's so teacher friendly and so useful that this document, this, this spreadsheet that we created actually permits them to finish the meeting sooner. How much training do they get? Is it like I could be up and running after a single workshop? Like how? Yeah. So learning curve. So typically when we, When people want to learn more about achievement teams, it's a two-day training back-to-back. But usually we invite people, if they've competed the first two days, then later on we do a three-day certification. It's a trainer of trainers model. This is where we give everybody all of our intellectual property. They become certified as an achievement team trainer. That Mm -hmm. way they can go back and now they have our PowerPoints, they have all our resources, and hopefully they'll have the book. (laughs) Wow. And they can go back and then train other people in their district. So say I'm a teacher and I'm in some tiny little district and I know that my district is never going to contract with you for this, but I want to get the book. Can I be effective? We do hour and night, an hour to 90 minute free webinars all over the place. We want to see this work. So mm-hmm. there are ways, even if you're very isolated and you can't do it, we, we never say no. We're like, however we can help, we'll help. You'll work with them. That's yeah. great to know. Steve, can you walk us through the four-step process? Sure. Piece by piece, spell it out Very for us. Very simple. Yeah. I and I won't I'll keep it so simple. I think you'll 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 see what it is. I mean, one okay. of the things we discovered, Christy, with pre and post assessment is a lot of people push back on that. They're not real, they don't like it. You know, they're they're not mm-hmm. really good consumers of format of assessment. So our first step is to have teachers consider creating a mirrored assessment. It's the same one that they would give twice, just so they could do apples to apples comparison. Mm -hmm. And what we discovered, and you were a classroom teacher, you would know this. When teachers give students assessment and those students have no prior knowledge, usually that first assessment is a waste of time. It's a disaster because teacher will say, I could have told you they don't know how to do this. 
I mean, imagine mm-hmm. if I was your Algebra 2 teacher and you came to my classroom on the first day of Algebra 2 and I said, hey, welcome to my class. I've been waiting for you all summer. Now I have 10 Algebra 2 problems on the board for warm-up today. And I know you can't do them. I just want to make sure you can't do it 10 times. I mean, that's not how to assess kids. Right. Yeah. So what I tell teachers is cold pre-assessments are usually disastrous because all they're going to tell you is that they have no prior knowledge. Mm-hmm. But we ask people to teach first a little bit, however they want, and then give the first assessment because guess what? That data is a reflection of their teaching. They're teaching. They own that data. Then they get a chance to evaluate that data, make the corrections they want to make, and then post-assess two or three weeks later. So it sounds simple, but it's breakthrough for a lot of people. Like, we never thought of that. We should teach first. That way we know that the data that they're telling us is what we taught them. If they didn't get it, we get a chance to reflect. So that's the first step is to pre-teach and then assess. Give those kids some lead-in, something that actually, you know, helps them remind them of the prior knowledge they may have because they could have forgotten. Uh-huh. Right. And then we chart those data. So after the first step, after we assess, we've given them an assessment, we come together, we, we chart the information, and that's the first step. Just pre-teach, reteach first step. The second step, ready, is setting mm-hmm. a goal between the pre and post-assessment. How much more proficient do we think we can get our kids? And how can the kids set their own goals? One of the things that data teams didn't have that achievement teams includes is to show kids how to set goals themselves. We discovered through research that goals are horribly underutilized, but they have tremendous effect. And it's called the self-determination theory, Christy. When you or I create our own goals, we're much more likely to go after those goals as opposed to somebody else Mm -hmm. telling us this is where you need to be. So we've built this self-determination theory into this second step, which is, yes, teachers, as a whole, you should get this amount of proficiency. But students, let's see how you can compare between your first assessment and your second assessment, and then compare your own progress. And that's the second step. So we have assessment for the first step, then goals, the second step. What do you think? First step, right? Goals. Okay. Yeah. Assessment, assessment, goals. Got it. I'm tracking. And then what we ask people to do is after they get the results back from the first assessment, this is step three. They create something called baseline evidence statements. This is just teachers looking at the evidence and making inferences. Why did this happen? And what can we do differently before we give the post-assessment? And so they're just inferencing, why did some kids get this? Why kids did not? Why are some kids proficient? Why why are some kids beginning? And they really Mm -hmm. get a chance to reflect on their teaching because now the conversation changes because I didn't teach it like you did, or I probably didn't cover this as much as I I could have. And so now they have a chance to analyze very deeply. And the last step is to select an instructional strategy between the pre and post assessment. And now they have those first three steps out of the way. So they look at what would have the greatest impact between pre and post that they didn't try already. And they use that. And then two or three weeks later, they give the post assessment. And then they have another meeting. And all they do is compare. They just look at what kind of growth did we get. And that's really it. So in a nutshell, It's collecting and charting data, creating goals for both teachers and students, analyzing the assessment results, and then selecting high impact, high probability instructional strategies that could at least considerably accelerate the achievement of our kids. That's it. I love it. So simple. So my my question about number four 
is these high-impact research-based strategies. As I'm reading through the steps and I'm thinking, so if I know as a teacher what those high-impact research-based strategies are, why am I not using them already? You say, our time with students is limited and valuable. Every minute we spend with them should be spent using the practices that are most likely to be successful. This requires us to shift our perspective from looking at instructional practices that work to looking at instructional practices that work best. And that was John Hattie, by the way. John Hattie, 2009, (laughs) right? Okay. So John Hattie, how do we know what those are? And if teachers, so they get to they get to number four and they think, okay, so I don't like the data I'm getting. I I see that my students are as successful as I want them to be, but mm-hmm. how do I know what to do different? So we have a list and wow. we have the strategies. We actually have an instructional flip book that contains 25 research-based instructional strategies that are content blind that you can use between a pre and post. We also have done extensive research through visible learning about, you know, our top 10 instructional strategies like jigsaw, like problem solving teaching, like summarizing, like teacher clarity. And so we have a really nice solid list of things that can have a significant impact on the growth. Okay. That the research already been done. Yes. So we just said, this has got it. We got to get this. So we, we scoured, we found them. Okay. And so talk about how this moves. So you've done the work as a team and you've gotten to number four. And then how does it move from theory to practice in the classroom? How does it change the actual outcomes for the kids? Yeah. So then like you said, like at this common planning time, the teachers talk about, well, how would we implement this in our classroom? So they try to firm that up before the end of the, this meeting, right? Like how, what strategies are we actually going to try to implement? Now, I know like teachers sometimes tell me we're at different places, we're at different paces. And I go, that's fine. But try to try to pick something that really has this high yield, this high impact and actually implement this. To go from theory to practice means that we don't say get it right. We say get it started and we'll fix it later. So try something new, take a risk, go and use it. And then come back and evaluate how much effect it had. No, teachers need to treat a pre and post assessment like a first draft in writing. Kids need to be taught that they never do well the first time they try anything. And so with Mm -hmm. this process, the teachers get a chance to reset their teaching and the students get another opportunity to reset the scores they got on the first assessment as as opposed to the scores they got on the second assessment. So Mm -hmm. it's really about giving everybody multiple opportunities to demonstrate proficiency. So just in thinking about implementing again, the process itself is obviously content agnostic. So it's cross content can be used with any team for anything, but it's not like I'm doing it all the time with every lesson I teach. No, no. We have, you know, people always ask this question, how many times should we do a cycle? A cycle Mm -hmm. is post-assessment. The only answer I have is as many times as you're willing to evaluate your teaching you decide. As many times you're willing to evaluate how effective you are, that's how many times you'd like to do a cycle. That could be four times a year. It could be eight times a year. But, you know, it's got to be sensible. You don't finish one and start another one right away. Right. You know, you got to let it, you know, it's got to marinate a little bit and then you you try it again. Yeah. I mean, quarterly seems like a manageable, a a manageable pace for, for a beginner. Perfect. 
right in between yeah. a unit, right in between a quarter. We'll do it in mm-hmm. the beginning. Yes. Can you share a success story from a specific classroom or school yeah. that you've worked with? So we're working with PS249 in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. First of all, they have a tremendous principal. This school is up for a national blue. They've been nominated for national blue ribbon. They have received national title one recognition. They have kids that come from low socioeconomic demographics are all there, but those folks have literally turned it around. I mean, that school with achievement teams, you have to understand where the school is situated. It's just not based on their zip code. It's just that, you know, this is Brooklyn, New York, Christy. Right. I mean, they have kids now 70% proficient in ELA and math that that was unheard of a few years ago. It's not just because of achievement teams. That's one of the things they do, but it's because they have a strong instructional leader that stayed with this for the last four years. It's been a trial of a year this past year. Just in general, education, there's a lot, always a lot of bad press around things going on in education. and But we don't always get as much press for the amazing things happening in education. And I would love for you to talk for a minute about what are some of the amazing things you're seeing and what is making you feel hopeful and excited? And I was just going to say how much hope there is out there. Kids give me a lot of hope because they're still showing up and doing the best they can, whatever that is. They're still showing up and they're trying to do that. And I watch teachers learn in the matter of hours how to transition from face-to-face to some sort of platform that would enable them. And yes, are they frustrated with a lot of their kids? Yeah, engagement's at an all-time low, failure's at an all-time high. But what gives me hope is people are still out there trunching around trying to make it work and they have as much enthusiasm to help people learn as they did when it was face-to-face. No one ever, I mean, there's a lot of people just like, I give up, I'm throwing my arms in the air. But you knock a teacher down, they always seem to find a way to get back up again. And, you know, our profession is tough. You know, it's not something for the faint of heart, but I'm watching people double down on their commitment, double down on the care they have for their students. Overall, I think people would be extremely impressed with what educators are doing right now, and they're trying to get it right. I know that there are going to be people listening who are going to wonder, where can I get Steve's book? Where can I find Steve? Where can, how can I reach out to Advanced Collaborative Solutions to come work with our team? So where, where are all the places that we can find you? Yeah, best place is just my website, just steveventura.com. We have a, a free resources link with a bunch of downloadable resources. We have free webinars around teacher clarity, around achievement teams. They're all mm-hmm. just on call whenever you want to watch them. And then, you know, people can follow me on Twitter. It's just at, at smventura. I appreciate that, Stephen. You've been so generous with your time. And I know that I am going to hit you up again because I would love to have you come back and talk to our listeners sometime about teacher clarity and some of the other pieces. Yeah, would love that. So Christy, thank you so much. So glad I got a chance to work with you. You can find Steve's website in the episode notes where you can connect to Advanced Collaborative Solutions, all of the trainings and support resources mentioned, and where you can stay updated on the release of Steve's upcoming book on achievement teams, due out in late 2021. You can also connect to today's sponsor, Future Holders, the collaborative outcome of the educators of the Aspen Academy and a fabulous resource for real-world hands-on learning. When school founder Brooke Wilfley was searching for curriculum for the launch of their new school, ACES Sports Academy, she said, quote, 
We knew that we wanted to find something that helped to create quality people, not just quality academics. We looked at several different leadership curriculums, but none seemed to encompass everything we wanted to provide for our students. When we looked at the future holders curriculum, it was a no-brainer. End quote. You can learn more about future holders at edcuration.com. Simply click the connect to vendor button to learn about their one month free trial. And while you're there, check out our certified ed trustee program that allows you to influence the educational market and try before you buy with innovative new instructional resources. You'll also find our micro professional learning explorations for educators, all free to you because you're teachers and you deserve all the support we can give you. We hope you'll join us again next week as we reshape learning together on the Ed Curation Podcast.